Today I'd like to begin our discussion of an important uh, text known as Wheel of Sharp Weapons. I uh, studied this with uh, one of my teachers in India, Geshe Ngawang Targye, and translated it under his supervision long ago in the 1970s uh, with a poetical rendition of it in order to try to make it uh, very uh, lovely to uh, recite. And much later, I uh, made a literal translation when I was teaching it in Berlin over a period of a few years. Actually, it went very, very slowly. Uh, the uh, recordings of that are on the website and they're still in the process of being transcribed. As uh, was mentioned on my uh, website, studybuddhism.com, uh, I recorded reading the uh, both versions of this, as well as the translations of uh, all the original texts that uh, I've translated. And uh, the reason for this, aside from the fact that some people like to listen to it, is that uh, there is the Tibetan tra uh, tradition of lung, an oral transmission. And uh, the uh, Tibetan way of uh, following this has been that uh, although they receive the oral transmission originally in Sanskrit coming from India, the texts were translated into Tibetan and then the oral transmission was carried on with the Tibetan translations. So uh, having great respect for uh, this tradition and uh, also from my experience trying to understand what was involved, why it was uh, important, I uh, um, decided that uh, it would be very important for my generation of translators, if we're going to continue this uh, tradition, to uh, start the oral transmission of our own tra translations so that uh, in the future this uh, tradition will be carried on. So I suggested this to uh, a few of my colleagues, and although they were uh, found that you know interesting in a sense, you know, oh, this is a great idea. Uh, nobody really seemed to uh, take it up, and so I uh, decided that well, I'll do it myself, uh, and uh, the way to do that is through uh, digital media, because uh, as uh, his Holiness the Dalai Lama has uh, said, this, this is a very serious issue in our present time. Uh, what happens when you have the um, transmission over the internet of initiations and various other teachings? Do people actually receive them? And uh, His Holiness said that uh, if it's the intention of the teacher that those who watch this or listen to this, receive the initiation. And those who are listening to it, it doesn't have to be at the exact same time because of time zone differences, but uh, those who listen to it, if they have the intention that they are receiving it, then it works. And I think this follows from what uh, occurred in Tibet, because if you think of it, you had these large crowds of people attending various teachings and they had no uh, amplifiers, no loudspeaker systems or anything like that. 
So obviously, uh, only the people that were sitting very close to the speaker could actually hear what was going on, and the people way in the back couldn't hear. But nevertheless, through that uh, interaction, they received the initiations, they received the oral transmissions. So I think this follows from the uh, same principle of this experience from uh, traditional Tibet and undoubtedly uh, India as well. And uh, if we think of the tradition of uh, oral transmission, what does that actually mean? Uh, initially, I thought that uh, it you know, meant that uh, the person who, I mean, not only did you have to have listened to and received the teachings before, and everything was transmitted orally, you know, uh, it was many centuries before any of the teachings were written down. And the only way to learn the teachings was that uh, you heard it recited, and people recited it in a group uh, over and over again, and through that process, you memorized it. And in this way, uh, oral transmission uh, occurred. And I had thought that uh, you had to actually understand the text, and that you were transmitting, in a sense, a, a realization or an understanding from uh, one generation to the next. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the case at all, because uh, I received the oral transmission of a, uh, a very special lineage of uh, a text by uh, Tsongkhapa from uh, my teacher, Sirkin Rinpoche, who received it from his father, who was his teacher, who had received it from a vision of Tsongkhapa, of a text uh, called Tange uh, Lekshi Nyingbo in uh, uh, Tibetan, which means uh, the essence of uh, clear explanation of definitive and interpretive meanings. It's one of the most difficult texts of Tsongkhapa. So anyway, I received that, and I never had the opportunity to actually study the text, and apparently uh, when it came time, and Sirkin Rinpoche never had time to give it to His Holiness, as he was waiting for some special occasion or something like that, so he never gave it to His Holiness. But the reincarnation of my teacher, Sirkin Rinpoche, wanted to have that oral transmission, and there was nobody around that uh, actually still had it. Uh, I was the only one that had it, and I have a very close connection with him, as I had with the old one, and so he asked me to give it to him, and I asked His Holiness, you know, can I do that? I'm not really, you know, am I qualified? I never studied the text. And he said, yes, that uh, you had received the oral transmission, and therefore you are qualified to give it. So I practiced reciting it out loud, you know, until I could do it in a reasonable amount of time, and I went to India and made a special trip and gave it to young Sirkin Rinpoche. And uh, thinking about it, the word for uh, the uh, uh, oral transmission has to do with uh, sound. You know, you're actually transmitting the speech. And uh, when you uh, look at the Sanskrit texts, the Sanskrit texts, many of them start uh, it, on this occasion, Ekasmin Samayam, in this occasion, Buddha was residing in such and such a place, and thus have I heard. 
So it was oral transmission. And the word for on this occasion, this occasion is samaya, samayam, in the accusative case. And samaya is the Sanskrit word which is also translated as what Westerners, how we pronounce it, samaya, the close connection, tamsik. They even translated it as sacred words in uh, Tibetan. And so what actually is transmitted is this close connection or close bond with the lineage. That uh, if you have a very close bond, a very close connection with the teacher who gave it, then you're transmitting this close connection with the text and the teaching to the next generation. And so this, I, uh, mm -hmm. I think, is uh, the principle behind this uh, oral transmission. And so in order to try to continue that uh, uh, custom and lineage, I recorded my translations onto uh, a digital device and have it available on the website so that uh, in future generations people can also make that uh, connection. So this is uh, just a, a background story that I thought uh, is uh, worthwhile spending a few minutes to uh, explain. Otherwise, uh, many of us uh, Westerners uh, think that uh, this whole idea of oral transmission in which you go and you can't even, I mean, the teachers recite it so quickly that uh, you can't possibly even follow. When I received this oral, specific oral transmission from Serkan Rinpoche, he did it by heart, which is the real way of uh, doing the oral transmission. He didn't read it. And this is a text which is about 250 pages long, and he used to recite it from memory every day as a part of his uh, daily practice. And he recited it so quickly, and he had the attendant, you know, following the text, you know, to make sure that he didn't make any mistakes in doing this. And my eyes couldn't go that quickly through the text to be able to follow what uh, he was saying. So this is the uh, uh, tradition of oral transmission. And we shouldn't think that this is something which is meaningless or trivial. It's not. So, I received this uh, transmission and explanation as well from Geshe Ngaon Targye, one of my uh, teachers. It was written by Dharma Rakshita at the end of the 10th century, beginning of the 11th century. And he was uh, one of the uh, teachers of uh, Atisha. Atisha had many teachers. I think he said 152 or something like that. And, uh, you know, often people uh, have this uh, confusion that I have many teachers, you know, so how do I actually deal with that? And uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, imagine them like the 11 faced Avalokiteshvara, that uh, they're different faces on one figure and they all fit together in a uh, very harmonious, integrated uh, way. That's uh, very helpful. Uh, Tisha was uh, a great Indian master who uh, traveled to Indonesia, to Sumatra, to uh, receive uh, specifically these mind training teachings. And uh, he uh, went back to uh, India and was invited to Tibet. And he 
was the uh, uh, person who began the second transmission of uh, Dharma from India into uh, Tibet after it had uh, declined uh, at the end of the first transmission from which the Nyingma teachings uh, derive. And uh, at the end of the text, what's known as the Kalafan, it doesn't uh, give any titles of uh, the translators. This is usually the custom that uh, with uh, Indian texts it'll give the Sanskrit title at the beginning and the name of the translators at uh, the end. And it doesn't do that. It just says that it was passed from uh, Atisha to Dramdumba, his uh, disciple, and then it uh, lists the lineage after that. And so my uh, suspicion is that uh, it was uh, uh, just received orally from uh, Dharma Rakshita to uh, Atisha, and it was actually written down in uh, Tibet uh, later, perhaps by Dramdumba or somebody after that. And uh, this is uh, also uh, confirmed by the fact that uh, the style of the text and many of the words are purely Tibetan style, not at all the style that you have of texts that are translated from Sanskrit. In any case, uh, Atisha had, according to Dramdumba, his uh, uh, Tibetan disciple, had three teachers of uh, Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is our mind being aimed at our own individual enlightenments which have not yet happened but which can happen on the basis of our Buddha nature factors and so aiming to achieve that in order to benefit all uh, beings. There's a conventional bodhicitta and deepest uh, bodhicitta. Uh, Conventional bodhicitta is aimed at the uh, nature of the mind that will be able to give rise to the form bodies of a Buddha, the appearances of a Buddha, and deepest uh, bodhicitta is aimed at the uh, voidness or emptiness of the mind which will uh, then uh, help to give rise to Dharmakaya, the uh, enlightened mind of a Buddha, the nature of the mind of a Buddha. So we have uh, these uh, bodhicitta teachings and uh, he said that uh, uh, according to Dramdamba, as I said, Atisha had three teachers of this in India, two of them, Dharmarakshita and Maitri Yogi, and one in Sumatra, it's called Sirlingba, which is uh, the person from the Golden Island, which is the name of Sumatra at that time. According to uh, tradition, Dharmarakshita had such great compassion, he cut off a piece of flesh from his leg to give to a sick man uh, as a type of medicine, Maitri Yogi was so advanced in his practice of Donglen, giving and taking, taking on the suffering of others and giving your own happiness, that he developed a bruise on his leg when a dog was hit. So he was able to take that uh, injury on himself. But Atisha said that the main source of the mind training teachings was Sirlingba, this uh, great master in uh, India. At uh, that time, there was, and for many centuries before that, there was a great deal of uh, sea trade between India and uh, Indonesia, specifically Sumatra. There was a great Buddhist kingdom which was uh, flourishing there at that time. And uh, recently, they have found the ruins of the uh, monastic institution in Sumatra 
where presumably Sirlingba taught and that uh, Atisha went to. And uh, it was larger than even Nalanda uh, University. This was an enormous center of learning. Uh, there's been very little research done on uh, Indonesian uh, Buddhism, actually, but they translated a great many texts into old Javanese, and they had this great center of learning. And Sulingba was the great master uh, from this uh, uh, monastic university. The present site is called Moara Jambi, and people there are trying to uh, uh, get this recognized as a world heritage uh, site and to help with more archaeological uh, excavations of it. But although uh, Atisha said that the main source of uh, the mind training uh, teachings were in, uh, Siling, uh, were in uh, Sumatra and he got from Sirlingba, again, my theory is that uh, he uh, received very many uh, similar teachings, like this uh, particular text of uh, Wheel of Sharp Weapons, and the second text that Dharma Rakshita wrote, which is called A Peacock's Destruction of Poison, and uh, th uh, that uh, these texts teach a great deal that is in common with the mind training uh, teachings. And so my theory is that uh, uh, Atisha wanted to learn more about that having been introduced to uh, these teachings, and for that he needed to go to Sumatra in order to uh, get them and uh, bring them back in full to India, and then he transmitted them to Tibet. So the question really is always, is this uh, text uh, part of uh, the mind training tradition, or is it a forerunner, or how uh, do we actually uh, uh, consider it. And if we look at the 14th century collection of uh, mind training texts, hundreds of mind trainings it's called, uh, it uh, includes Dharma Rakshita's two works in it. And in some editions it even adds onto the title of it a Mahayana mind training, Wheel of Sharp Weapons, which is not part of the title that Dharma Rakshita himself gave to uh, the text. And I think, as I said, it has many aspects which are in common with the mind training teaching, particularly the uh, practice of donglen, giving and taking, accepting the defeat on yourself and giving the victory to others is the source in uh, the Garjana's uh, text, Precious Garland, that uh, this uh, tradition derives from, and uh, Shantideva, also in engaging in bodhisattva behavior, uh, also uh, teaches this uh, giving and taking practice in uh, one of the final verses of his 10th chapter, the dedication prayer at the end. He says, whatever suffering wandering beings have, may all of them ripen on me, and through the bodhisattva assembly, may wandering beings enjoy happiness. So uh, this tradition uh, of uh, giving and taking has a long history in uh, India and it was uh, elaborated on uh, by Dharma Rakshita with the uh, uh, emphasis on the disadvantages of self-cherishing which prevent us from uh, being able to actually take on the sufferings of others with compassion and give them happiness uh, with love uh, 
is emphasized in uh, Dharma Rakshita's uh, text. The text has uh, 118 verses, and uh, it starts with, uh, you know, first I'd like to give an overview of the text before we uh, get into it, so we have some idea of the uh, general uh, structure of uh, the whole text and how uh, each of the four sections that uh, I think it can be divided into uh, fit with uh, each other. The text starts with prostration to the three gems, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and gives its title, the wheel of sharp weapons, striking the vital point of the foe, and then makes prostration to Yamantaka, who uh, is also known as Vajrabhairava, and uh, this is the forceful form of Manjushri. This is quite uh, unusual to make the prostration to uh, uh, Yamantaka, and uh, we need to uh, understand why Yamantaka has such a prominent place in these two works by uh, Dharma Rakshata. Dharma, uh, Yamantaka is the forceful form of Manjushri. Uh, Manjushri represents the discriminating awareness or wisdom of uh, emptiness or voidness that destroys the foe, the enemy, which is our ignorance, our grasping for an impossible false self uh, that doesn't exist at all and our self-cherishing that uh, derives from that. And the only way to overcome that is through our realization that uh, uh, what we project about the self doesn't correspond to reality. So we need this discriminating awareness to discriminate between what is reality and what is pure projection of uh, fantasy. It's very important to understand when we have a text that is dealing with this uh, self-grasping and uh, d trying to overcome that and to destroy that, what actually is uh, involved here when we speak about the self or person in uh, Buddhism. We need to differentiate between the conventional self and the false self. The conventional self actually exists. Now, of course, you can get into a deep philosophical discussion about what does it mean to exist, but uh, if we use a simple explanation, it functions, performs a function. We do things. We uh, act in positive ways or negative ways and we experience the results of our behavior. So in that sense, we participate in cause and effect, and you can't say that uh, the self doesn't exist at all. That would be the nihilist extreme. We don't go to the eternalist or the nihilist, the two extremes. The nihilist is that there's no self at all. If that were the case, it doesn't matter what we do, because uh, there are no consequences of it. We wouldn't experience anything. So that certainly isn't the Buddhist teaching. And the eternalist uh, position is that we have this solid self. The solid self is you know, never changing and doesn't affect, isn't affected by anything. It can exist independently of a body and mind. And in liberation goes to you know, moksha, liberation. You know, just exists by itself. And 
that also would uh, negate the idea of cause and effect. If uh, we're permanent and aren't affected by anything, then it doesn't matter also what we do. So that also is uh, refuted by the Buddhist teachings. So there is a conventional self by convention. We all agree, we experience it uh, this way, which is an imputation on the five aggregates, our body, to put it simply, body, mind, what we perceive, the emotions, all the uh, mechanism with which we, the mind works, you know, attention, concentration, interest, these sort of things. All of that's going on at the same time many, many different parts. All of them are changing at a different rate. What we're paying attention to, all the emotions that are there, the sensations in the body, all these things are changing at uh, a different rate. And self doesn't exist something separately from that. It's not identical to any of them, but is what's known as an imputation. And I think the easiest way to try to understand what an imputation means, which is a very difficult uh, idea, actually, is the relation between the whole and the parts. It's not exactly the same in terms of the relation of the self and the aggregates, but I think it's close enough to get the idea that uh, uh, there are all these parts, but there's also a whole, and you can't say that the whole doesn't exist, but the whole can't exist separately from the parts. And you can't find the whole in any of the individual parts either. But there is such a thing as a whole. And what's the relation between a whole and the parts is that a whole is what's known as an imputation on the parts. So from uh, one point of view, you would say that uh, it is objectively the case. It's agreed upon by convention. So. We have the convention that there is a self. We feel that. The problem, of course, is that because of our limited hardware, our limited minds, uh, the self appears to be self-established, independent, doesn't have any parts. It never changes. It is something that uh, uh, we experience in terms of this voice that goes on in our heads. It's as if there's a me sitting inside that's talking and complaining and commenting on everything and is the controller. That uh, there's this uh, very uh, um, compelling idea that uh, uh, there's a, a me inside that is somehow living inside my head or living inside my body, and uh, it, you know, what should I do now? Everybody's looking at me, you know, uh, all of that. Uh, what do people think of me? Uh, is insecure and is always trying to find some ways to make itself secure. So uh, we have these mechanisms of uh, the disturbing emotions, like uh, uh, longing desire you know, lust, if I can just get something to me, that's, and hold on to it, that, that's going to make me secure. Or anger, if I can get it away, that'll make me secure. Or naivety, if I just pretend it doesn't exist, put up the walls, that, uh, that will also uh, make me feel secure. But of course, it never works. 
and it leads to our compulsive behavior out of anger or greed or naivety. That's what karma is all about, and that leads to problems, obviously. Problems for others, but particularly problems for ourselves, because it builds up strong habits for that to repeat. So this is what, so we get into this loop, you know, we're almost addicted to our destructive, uh, self-destructive behavior. So all of that is based on this projection of how the self appears. It appears to be this solid entity inside me, and that is identified as the foe. That's our real enemy, is this false imaginary projection that we project onto the conventional self. Now, the conventional self isn't sitting there either, but we project this and we believe now grasping. When you hear the word self-grasping, it has two levels of meaning. Grasp is, is the same word as to take something as its object, for the mind to take it as its object. So the mind projects this appearance and it seems like that to us. It seems as though there's somebody talking inside my head, me, right? So that is the perception of it. And then the second aspect of uh, what's called grasping is that we think that that corresponds to reality, to how things actually exist. So first you have to get rid of that belief. You know, I mean, this is garbage, you know, so it's like an illusion. It seems as though it is, corresponds to reality, but it doesn't. So we have to cut that off first. And then we have to get our minds to stop projecting this. You know, the more that you are totally convinced that this is nonsense, it, uh, and the more that you focus on the absence of that, that's what emptiness or voidness is uh, referring to. It's not referring to that there as a, a conventional self sitting there, and like a glass, but it's empty of the false self. Like, uh, there's no water in the glass. That's not the meaning. It's just, there is no such thing as this uh, impossible self, this false self. Nevertheless, we do things, so we experience the results of our behavior. So karma still operates, cause and effect uh, still operates. So what we want to do is break the continuity of uh, this uh, believing that this appearance of a false self corresponds to reality. So the more we focus on there's no such thing, we have broken the, what should we say, the force of our mind making that projection. You know, we focus on no such thing, so we don't have that projection. And the more familiar you become with uh, no such thing, so in that total absorption, it's not appearing, your mind isn't making it appear, then that inertia, that force of making the, the mind making it appear over and over again gets broken. And becomes weaker and weaker the more that you focus on emptiness or voidness. And that way, eventually, the mind will stop producing this garbage, this uh, projection. And that's how you overcome it. 
So this is uh, very important to understand uh, because that's the main topic that is being discussed here is this foe, our enemy, which is grasping for this impossible self. In other words, mind making it appear and then believing it corresponds to reality. And then what is known as self-cherishing, which comes from that. Self-cherishing means that I'm the most important and you know you don't count. I don't care about you. This type of uh, attitude. Uh, it uh, is uh, in the West we speak more in terms of selfishness. You know, self, you know, being self-preoccupied, just me, me, me. Uh, so this comes from that me, me, me that we're thinking of is the false self. Me, me, me. You know, that little me inside my head. I've got to get my way. I'm the most important one. Everybody should pay attention to me. You know, I should be first in line. I should get the best seat. This type of, uh, of thing, um, which obviously we all experience. And it's very compelling because it seems as though that really is how things are. So that's self-cherishing. That, uh, I'm the, the most important one. I have to take care of me first. So this is what uh, Manjushri is the discriminating awareness that uh, discriminates between what actually exists, reality, and what is complete fantasy. And uh, we need to cut off in a very forceful way this uh, uh, false view. And this is what Yamantika represents, you know, a very forceful way of a forceful form of Manjushri. Sometimes uh, we hear these uh, forceful forms referred to as wrathful. But uh, I don't think wrathful really, has, at least in English, doesn't have the uh, connotation that we want here. Wrathful sounds like uh, you're really angry <laughs> and the mind is quite disturbed when you're uh, wrathful. And although we have, you know, uh, many images like that, and, Shant and uh, Dharma Rakshita even uses them. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the point of it is that it is very forceful, very, very strong energy that uh, we want to use to, you know, against our disturbing emotions, against our self-grasping, sort of this uh, idea that, uh, you know, talking to yourself, stop acting like a baby, you know, stop acting like an idiot, you know, sort of cut it out, stop it. This type of uh, uh, strong um, um, action that we need to just stop it, this type of thing. So that's Yamantika. In the uh, second chapter, of the condensed chapters of the Vajrabhayava root tantra. This is the source of the Yamantika teachings or Vajrabhayava teachings. There is a description of rituals using various devices for extremely forceful actions against harmful beings. It gives the instructions of how to make these things in rituals. And among these rituals, there's a, the construction of what's called a weapon wheel. Uh, a weapon wheel this is this wheel of sharp weapons that, I'm, uh, that I translated as, is actually a throwing star. <laughs> That's what uh, it's called in the Japanese ninja uh, tradition, 
you know, it's uh, like a star, it's sort of a, looks like a wheel in the center, and it has blades uh, sticking out in all directions, and it's thrown as, you know, some horrible weapon. Uh, if you look at the iconography of uh, uh, various figures that hold this weapon wheel, uh, like Yamantika, uh, this is what, how it is uh, depicted. And so I've translated that when I made the literal translation, not literal, the poetic translation as a wheel of sharp weapons. And that somehow has uh, stuck as uh, the name that uh, other people use for uh, this text. Yamantika has 34 arms, and he holds this in uh, one of them, and uses it to wage war against the enemy, our foe, the uh, grasping for a false self one whose existence is impossible. This uh, war against the false self is an image found throughout Buddhist literature. Uh, Buddha, after all, came from the warrior caste. And so it's quite natural that uh, this type of martial imagery is uh, found uh, throughout the uh, Buddhist literature. And the Tibetan translation of an arhat, a liberated being, is to use Jeffrey Hopkins' uh, translation of it, a foe destroyer, the one that uh, destroys the enemy. And one of the ways of doing that is this throwing star weapon, wheel of sharp weapons. The uh, prominence of a weapon wheel, I think, can perhaps be uh, traced back uh, much earlier than uh, this in the iconography of the Hindu god Vishnu. Vishnu goes all the way back to the Vedas, even before the time of Buddha, holds a war discus, it's usually called, doesn't have the uh, knives sticking out of it. Uh, that's called the wheel of uh, correct teachings. This wheel appears, you know, so frequently in uh, all of the Indian teachings. You know, it represents samsara, you know, the wheel of recurring existence. So this is the wheel of the correct teachings in the early um, um, Indian non-Buddhist uh, philosophy with Vishnu. He holds it in one of his four hands and it represents restoring the uh, Dharma, the wheel of Dharma, the wheel of the teachings uh, with war if it's necessary. And so he throws this uh, out to uh, um, defeat the enemy and restore the pure Dharma. So this image is carried on in uh, the Buddhist teachings as well. So how do we do this in the Buddhist context and uh, in the mind training tradition? We uh, do this through uh, transforming adverse circumstances into circumstances that help us to progress on the path to enlightenment. I think this is you know, the essence of uh, what the mind training teachings are all about. That word mind training, uh, it's the commonly used term that uh, we find, but uh, we have to be a little bit careful about uh, what we're talking about. We're not just talking about training in concentration. That's not at all the uh, point here. But uh, when we're talking about the mind, we're talking about our attitudes. The Tibetan word for mind that's used here is often used for our, you know, the attitudes that we have, how we view things. Our attitude is so important. If you have a negative attitude or a positive attitude, 
toward uh, situations. You can change your um, experience of a difficult situation by changing your attitude about it. Very wonderful, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was uh, saying, uh, how do you deal with depression? <laughs> that, uh, you know, things are going so terrible in the world and, you know, particularly about the situation of Tibet and so on, how do you avoid, you know, getting discouraged about uh, what's going on? And His Holiness said that uh, if you can find just a little, little bit of something that is a little bit better than it was before. It gives you hope. And hope is the clue to being able to overcome depression and discouragement. That you change your attitude that, you know, well, something positive is possible, even if it's very small. So this change of attitude from, you know, how we view uh, circumstances is what enables us to change adverse or uh, difficult circumstances into positive ones. And the word that's uh, used here for training also has the connotation of cleansing. So you want to clean out from your mind the negative attitudes and develop instead, because the, the word is also used in education to develop something, we want to develop positive attitudes. And we do this through primarily this donglen, uh, uh, giving and taking. Let's take a moment to just reflect on, uh, you know, this is what we're going to be talking about, how to overcome this uh, self-grasping, that there is a difference between the conventional self and the false self and that conventional self like the whole it's not the same as the parts it's not different from the parts doesn't exist from the parts but nevertheless there's a whole so nevertheless there is a self and it functions even though you can't actually pinpoint it anywhere and the projection onto that that it's you know actually some little me sitting in my head talking and trying to be in control which is impossible
Okay. When we say, well, now think about it, what we need to do is to try to understand what this is talking about. When we say that uh, I do exist, there is the conventional me, but I don't exist in the way that it appears to me that I exist. That that is uh, a projection of nonsense, but that doesn't mean that I don't exist. We need to really try to understand correctly. This is what we think about. You know, if we've listened, if we've heard this, uh, a clear explanation of it, then you try to understand it. And once we understand what it's actually saying, then we have to see, does it make sense? Is this correct? And we have to look in terms of our experience, we have to look in terms of what follows from it. When we do think that way, when we do accept it that way, what it's based on, uh, all of these things. And only when we are convinced that this is correct can we actually do what is called meditation, build it up as a beneficial habit. So understanding the teachings and being convinced that they are correct are these essential factors. Otherwise, to meditate on something and we don't really understand it and we're not really convinced that it is, you know, correct. You know, it doesn't take us uh, very far. So this is the whole purpose of uh, debate in the Tibetan tradition because uh, we won't challenge our own understanding as uh, unrelentingly, you know, and forcefully as others will in the debate. And all that, well, we, what they're always trying to do is to challenge our understanding, to make us contradict ourselves. So through that process of discussion with others, it doesn't have to be formal debate. Then we check our understanding. Do I really understand it correctly? Because to concentrate on an incorrect understanding can be disastrous. So we want to have a correct understanding and be convinced of it so that we don't have any doubts. When we have doubts, it's called indecisive wavering, and that is the biggest, the big obstacle in uh, meditation on these deeper points. I mean, of course, you don't want to start, you know, mentally wandering about lunch. That's something else. But, uh, you know, on a more subtle level, it's this indecision about what does it actually mean that prevents us from really being focused. Uh, in a meaningful way on uh, any of the Dharma points. So that's in the process of listening, thinking, and meditating. That's what's called thinking, contemplating it, analyzing it. That we try to do. I think most of us aren't really at that stage where we can meditate according to the definition of what meditation actually is. We need to 
really try to chew on the teachings and try to figure it out. What does it really mean? So anyway, the uh, text itself then, after this uh, salutation, has four parts. To destroy self-grasping and self-cherishing and attain enlightenment, all of the mind training texts emphasize Donglen, this uh, giving and taking, which is uh, the method for developing conventional bodhicitta, uh, part of the method known as equalizing and exchanging our attitudes about self and others. Uh, two traditions for how to develop conventional bodhicitta, you know, may I attain this, my not yet attained enlightenment in order to benefit all beings, that we have to develop concern for uh, everyone. So there is uh, one which uh, can be described as an emotionally based approach and one which is more uh, rationally uh, based approach. The emotional one after uh, this uh, first leveling out of equanimity that uh, we have an equal attitude toward everyone. We don't want to just work with uh, those that we like and so on. So we have that basis. And then the emotional one, emotionally based one, is everybody's been my mother. They've been so kind. I really feel so grateful and appreciate it so much that uh, I want to repay this uh, kindness. When I think of others, it warms my heart. You know, I cherish them. It would be terrible if something bad happened to them. And then compassion, may they be free from their suffering and love. May they be uh, uh, endowed with happiness. And I take, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to bring that to them. And then the exceptional resolve, I'm really going to do it. So, you know, we make the full decision, I'm going to do it. And the only way that I can really do that is to get rid of all my limitations and so on and become a Buddha. So we aim with bodhicitta to attain enlightenment. So this is emotionally based. We're thinking of the kindness of everybody that they've been my mother. So for uh, many of us who are more emotionally inclined, this is very helpful. But uh, there are those that are not so emotionally inclined. And the more rational approach is that uh, uh, everybody is equal. I mean, once we level out the uh, field, uh, then everybody is equal. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be unhappy. There's nothing special about me in uh, that uh, way, that uh, we are all equal. And on that basis, then uh, if we're only thinking of ourselves, self-cherishing, all these disadvantages come, nobody likes us, you know, we just cause ourselves problems and so on. Uh, whereas cherishing others, thinking of others, brings uh, happiness. Therefore, I want to change my attitude and think primarily of others. It's possible to do this because uh, if I look at my body that I you know, cherish so much, it comes actually from pieces of the body of somebody else, my parents, the sperm and egg. It's not my body at all. I didn't produce the sperm and egg that made my body. And so I can, you know, what's the difference between wiping my nose and wiping the nose of the baby, of my baby, and wiping the nose, you know, of the drunk in the street with my fingers, just a nose. So we're all equal in that way, and we can, we are capable of uh, cherishing others, exchange our attitudes. So we do this with Dong Len, with taking on 
the sufferings of others with compassion, may they be free of it, uh, of their suffering and the causes of suffering and giving to others happiness. May they be happy and uh, may they have the causes for happiness. And then the same thing, we decide that, uh, you know, not just doing it in our imagination with Don Len, I really, you know, this exceptional resolve, I'm really going to take responsibility to do it in actuality and then bodhicitta. To do that I have to attain enlightenment to be able to really do it. So that appeals to those who are more rationally inclined because it's not based on the emotion of everybody's been so kind to me so I want to help them, but rather that we all are equal so it makes absolute sense and we're all interconnected and so on. So nothing special about me. So we have uh, this uh, uh, more rational approach here in uh, the uh, Donglen practice of uh, equalizing, exchanging our uh, attitudes about self and others. And this is emphasized in the uh, Lojong teachings, the mind training teachings in the Wheel of Sharp Weapons, and also later in the uh, Seven Point Mind Training text by Geshe Chikawa, where uh, with uh, Donglen, with giving and taking, we need to specifically take on from uh, all others with compassion the three poisons and the sufferings that come from them. You know, we have the forerunner of that here in Wheel of Sharp Weapons. There it says specifically take the three poisonous attitudes, greed or lust and uh, anger and naivety and give them the opponents to this. I think there's uh, an earlier forerunner of that as well in the concert of names of Manjushri. Again, we have Manjushri involved uh, here, which is a much earlier text. There it says, in his great offering festival, great longing desire is the provider of joy to limited beings. So the offering festival of the mind, you will take on all the longing desire, and it's a great festival, your way to be able to uh, provide joy to all limited beings. It goes on, in his great offering festival, great anger is the great foe of all disturbing emotions. In the Great Offering Festival, great naivety is the dispeller of the naivety of the naive mind. So I think this idea of uh, transforming, you know, offering into the nature of the mind all the uh, disturbing emotions and so on to be able to give joy to others uh, already is associated with Manjushri and this uh, very basic uh, Tantra text, the concert of names of uh, Manjushri. Dharma Rakshita in the Wheel of Sharp Weapons and his second text, uh, Peacock's, Peacock's Destruction of Poison, uses the image of a peacock thriving on poisonous plants as the image for taking on these uh, poisonous or toxic uh, emotional states of uh, longing, desire, anger, and uh, naivety. Uh, why the peacock? Uh, I think this goes back to the uh, imagery of uh, Amitabha. Amitabha uh, is on a throne supported by peacocks, either one peacock or eight peacocks on uh, the various corners. And Amitabha uh, represents the purification of desire, of longing desire. So there is already this uh, association of peacock with uh, uh, the purification, transformation of desire through the imagery of uh, Amitabha. 
we avoid uh, taking on you know, the uh, disturbing emotions of others uh, because of our selfish desires for ordinary pleasures. And if we are still addicted to these ordinary pleasures, then like crows trying to eat poisonous plants, it would destroy us. So this is emphasizing how advanced this uh, type of practice is. And we are, uh, if we are not at the level at which we could do this, and we try to do this, all that will happen is that uh, it will increase our disturbing emotions and that poison will destroy us. So then uh, Dharma Rakshita points out that these desires for ordinary pleasures come from grasping for a false impossible self and lead to our acting destructively. So like peacocks, uh, we as bodhisattvas, peacock here is the image of a bodhisattva, need to take on the sufferings of everyone that come from the three uh, poisons and transform them into nutrition by using them to gain the understanding of voidness. We focus on the voidness or emptiness of the person who's experiencing the, uh, these disturbing emotions. And so we destroy our grasping for a true self and to give, then give happiness to others. This emphasis on uh, destroying this uh, idea of a false self, experiencing uh, the sufferings and the causes of suffering, is uh, very essential in the general Buddhist uh, teachings. If we look at uh, what is the main focus on the what's called the five paths, you know, the path of uh, usually translated as accumulation and preparation and seeing and so on. Uh, what you're focusing on is the Four Noble Truths. And uh, the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, and this can be on many, many levels, but one of the more important ones, the most commonly shared ones, is the voidness or emptiness of the self that is experiencing the Four Noble Truths. Mahayana, you also focus on the voidness of the, of the truths themselves. but. What is important is, you know, who is it that is experiencing suffering? You know, it makes such a big deal out of it. And who is it, what is it, that is experiencing the causes of it? This grasping for the true self and these poisonous attitudes that come from it. And who is it that will be able to have a true stopping of that? And who is it that is going to be meditating on the opponents, the true path, to overcome that. If you think in terms dualistically of, you know, a solid self separate from all of this, you know, poor me, I'm suffering, this type of attitude doesn't work. Not at all. And I'm so stupid because I don't understand reality, you know, so this is not the way to uh, follow the Buddhist path. So what we need to really focus on as we progress, you know, through the stages of getting rid of the obscurations, you know, the junk that prevents us uh, from seeing reality, which causes all our problems, is that understanding of the nature of the self experiencing Four Noble Truths. And here we're focusing on, you know, to get rid of the uh, poisonous effect of these disturbing emotions, we have to understand 
the, uh, and refute the enemy, this grasping for the true self, for you know, the false so-called true self. We imagine that it truly exists, but it doesn't. Uh, the false self is what this is referring to, that uh, there is no false self that is experiencing these things. Cause and effect doesn't work on the basis of you know, a solid me that can't be affected by anything that you know, tries to be in control. That doesn't work. That's not the one that is actually experiencing cause and effect. So we want to uh, destroy that belief and eventually stop our minds from producing that uh, appearance. And we want to be able to give happiness to others. And uh, we will uh, discuss that uh, a little bit later. Because uh, this is very difficult. Very difficult if you think about it. You take on the, uh, the sufferings of others. And you think, oh, this is terrible, you know, that everybody is suffering. And uh, you feel pretty sad about that. So on that basis of pretty, feeling pretty sad, how can you all of a sudden switch? And now I'm going to give you happiness. How do you switch from being so sad to being happy all of a sudden? You know, it's not that I'm happy that you're suffering. So this is uh, the real, uh, what should we say, the real trick in being able to uh, do this uh, Donglen uh, practice. But uh, we'll discuss that when we go into uh, more detail about this first part of the text. The second part of the text talks about uh, what prevents us from doing this, from uh, uh, taking on these poisonous attitudes of others, like a peacock, and not being destroyed by it, uh, and being able to give them happiness. By the way, in the text, it talks about the peacocks eating poisonous plants. And uh, in India, there is a certain bush that has very beautiful uh, flowers. Some are red petals, some are yellow, yellow petals in the same flower. And the animals, like uh, uh, cows and uh, sheep and goats, somehow know that this is poisonous and they won't eat it. Now, I don't know if peacocks eat it, but uh, this is the uh, type of thing that perhaps it's referring to. In other contexts, uh, peacocks are known for eating poisonous snakes. But uh, in this particular uh, text, it's referring to uh, eating poisonous plants. So what prevents us from taking on the sufferings of others and these three poisons are our negative attitudes, our negative habits of acting just with self-interest. So our enemy, our grasping for a false and possible self, brings on these three poisons. And, you know, because, as I was saying, uh, they're mechanisms that we think will make us secure. If I can just get something and hold on to it, it'll make me secure. If I can get away what I feel threatening, it'll make me secure. If I can put up the walls and pretend that it doesn't exist, that'll make me uh, secure. I mean, none of that uh, works. But under its influence, we trigger destructive impulses, that's karma. We compulsively commit destructive acts, and that brings on suffering. So because of those three poisons, like crows, we're harmed by them, rather than being able to transform them like peacocks. And because we're stuck in that negative pattern of destructive behavior, we can't practice donglen. So we need to get rid of the destructive behavior and the obstacles it brings 
in order to be brave enough to take on the sufferings and the causes of them. This is the connection with Dong uh, Len. Preventing us from doing that is our destructive behavior that's brought on by the uh, poisons. So to get rid of the poisons, first we have to get rid of what is uh, uh, that behavior that will come from them. Then you get, you know, go deeper and get rid of the disturbing emotions themselves, the poisons. So the text identifies suffering as the sharp weapon of negative karma circling back on us. So instead of using the image of the wheel of sharp weapons to represent the understanding of voidness or emptiness that will destroy the grasping for a true self that brings on these three poisonous emotions, destructive behavior and suffering, Dharmarakshita uses now this image of the wheel of sharp weapons to represent the mechanism of karma, whereby our compulsive destructive behavior based on the three poisons bring on suffering and it harms our conventional self and prevents us from acting like a bodhisattva and taking on these poisons and transforming them. So this idea of a, a wheel being used to uh, represent not just, you know, what's going to uh, destroy our self-grasping, not used uh, just for the wheel of Dharma, which we will turn you know, after that, you know, rounds of transmission. But uh, here it also is uh, talking about the uncontrollably recurring patterns that come from karma. And this is very much like the wheel of samsara. Uh, when again going back to Manjushri, if you look at uh, Manjushri's uh, mantra, uh, Om Arapatsanadi, uh, you look at the Sanskrit, Arapatsana, it comes from Ara and Pachana, Pachana actually, if you want to pronounce it uh, the Sanskrit way. Ara means a wheel, referring to uh, the wheel of samsara, and Pachana is the one that will. Uh, ripen, so the ripening of others off of that wheel, so they fall off the wheel like a piece of fruit falling off of a, a tree. And this is what Manjushri does, is that he, you know, the discriminating awareness of voidness will cause beings who are suffering on this wheel of samsara to ripen and fall, ripen with correct understanding and wisdom, so like a piece of ripe fruit, they will fall off the tree or the wheel of that. So we get the mantra of uh, Manjushri. So we use the uh, Dharma Rakshita uses that image here of the wheel of sharp weapons. So then most of the second part of the text lists the many types of suffering we experience and the destructive behavior that's their karmic cause and the type of constructive behavior that counters them. This is wonderful teachings because uh, it, uh, you know, it helps us to identify when we are experiencing some type of suffering that is happening to us. You know, we get into different situations to try to understand what is the karmic cause for that and what do we need to do to counter that. We not only need to stop acting in that way, but we also need to act in a, almost an opposite way that will uh, um, counter that. This is so helpful when we uh, have the uh, teachings on karma. Uh, we don't usually get all the detail 
of examples that uh, we find in this uh, text. You know, you get general things and basically you have to figure it out yourself. Like with uh, slander, that uh, if we're always saying bad things about uh, others, that this is the cause of our friendships not lasting. So if we experience that, you know, we get into relationships, but they end all the time, and people leave us, and uh, all of that, then makes you start to examine your own behavior. What might I be doing that causes that? Because if I'm experiencing this ripening from that uh, pattern of behavior, I would also be experiencing <coughs> compulsively repeating the pattern, you know, the cause of it. So am I saying negative things about other people, about other people's friends. And so if we examine ourselves, we might find that we are doing that. We say we criticize others and so on. And that's the cause for separation from parting. So we're experiencing our own people parting, you know, friends parting from us. And that gives us a clue that, you know, well, don't just stop. You know, there's two levels of constructive behavior. First level is to when that feeling comes up that you want to say something, you know, critical, you know, really harmful and nasty to uh, someone about their friend for the motivation that you want to part them, you know, and get them to be your own friend, not out of, you know, let's say your son is hanging out with uh, people who are shooting up heroin and you want them to try to stop you know, associating with these uh, type of uh, friends. That's something else. Different motivation. But if the motivation is, you know, well, you know, I don't want, you, I want you not to be a friend of this person. I want you to be my friend. This type of uh, thing. Then we just don't do it. Self-control. That's the first level of uh, uh, avoiding destructive behavior. Second one is something positive, which is to you know, think of the, you know, positive things of others, praise the positive things. So karma, the teachings on karma are uh, very, very helpful, and this text points out so many of these uh, syndromes. Very, very helpful. That's the second part. Um, the emphasis then is on changing our behavior, and uh, through these positive actions that we do, instead of the negative ones, it builds up our so-called roots of constructive acts. So the roots of the positive force, it builds up positive force, and as a root, it can give rise to a plant. I mean, not as a, I'm sorry, a seed gives rise to a plant. As a root, it anchors us. And so then you want uh, uh, the plant to grow and to be stable, this positive force, you want to give that to others. Then the third part, Dharma Rakshita, identifies the real enemy that's causing us to act in destructive, these destructive ways that uh, has brought on such suffering, and that's our grasping for a true self, one that doesn't exist at all. And we call on Yamantika, this forceful, discriminating awareness of voidness, to destroy this demon of self-grasping. Then in many verses, uh, Dharma Rakshita goes through all the troubles that our self-grasping and self-cherishing have caused us. This is, uh, we find this in the equalizing and exchanging our attitudes about self and others. It always has, you know, a big long session on the section on the disadvantages 
the harms that come from self-cherishing. So here Dharma Rakshita elaborates on that, and we invoke Yamantika, you know, with the phrase, crash, really crash down right on the head of this ruinous concept, deal the death blow to the heart of this butcher, a true self, our foe. So this is said in a very poetic way, which is uh, quite Tibetan in its uh, style. So these type of uh, refrains that we find are more typically Tibetan and lead us to think that it wasn't actually composed in Sanskrit, but just transmitted orally from India. Then the fourth part of the text is once we've destroyed our self-grasping and self-cherishing, having, as the text says, placed all the blame on this one thing, which is a line that's repeated later on in the seven-point mind training by Geshe Chikawa, place all the blame on one thing, or self-cherishing. If, uh, you know, we uh, get, ask somebody else to do something for us, and they make a mistake, they do it wrong, you know, place all the blame on one thing. I was selfish and lazy, I didn't want to do it myself. And so I asked somebody else, so it's actually my fault that uh, uh, things didn't uh, turn out the way that I wanted <laughs> them to. So uh, I can't really blame the others. You know, if you ask somebody else to do something, expect that something's gonna go wrong. If they do it right, well, that's a great bonus, but you know, it's really our, our own selfishness. I mean, maybe we're too busy, maybe we have other more important things to do, that's something else. But if our motive is that, you know, well, I don't want to do it, so you, know, you do it, uh, then that's selfishness. So once we uh, have placed all the blame on this one thing, we've destroyed our self-grasping and self-cherishing, we can dedicate the roots of our constructive actions to others. And the rest of this uh, final section is what we give to others, especially our understanding of voidness and dependent arising. This is what we want to uh, give to others so that they can likewise overcome their self-grasping. And then we advise all beings to gain that understanding of voidness like we have, especially the voidness of karmic cause and effect. Voidness of cause and effect is very, very important, although it seems like an illusion, nevertheless it functions and it works. And so we need to understand that. And although we understand that suffering, etc., and the whole process of causality is like an illusion, each verse ends with, quote, while being mere appearances, hey, I tell you, we must accept and reject the appropriate actions. So although things appear to exist, you know, self-established as if they were, sometimes I use the image of encapsulated in plastic, there they are all by themselves, you know, independent of everything else. Nevertheless, you know, this is the important word, nevertheless they function even though they appear in this uh, ridiculous way, because our minds are limited, our software is limited. This is samsaric body and samsaric mind. Then the text concludes that if we practice conventional and deepest bodhicitta like this, we'll attain enlightenment for the benefit of all. So this is the general structure of uh, the text, that uh, first we want to uh, uh, practice 
like uh, peacocks, bodhisattvas, taking on the, uh, these poisonous uh, attitudes of uh, uh, longing, desire, and anger, and naivety, and transform them so that uh, we can dissolve them, they don't uh, harm us, and they then we're able to give happiness to others. What prevents us from doing that is the suffering that we experience as a result of our destructive behavior that comes from the three poisons. So we're like crows. We take the three poisons and it causes us so much, so much suffering. So we want to be able to stop that. Otherwise, we're just going to be, if we take on even more poisonous attitudes, it will surely destroy us completely. So first we have to stop this uh, destructive behavior and to be able to give happiness to others, we have to build up some positive force that we can give to others. And so through constructive behavior, then, you know, once we stop on this level, the destructive behavior, we have to go deeper and get rid of the self-grasping, you know, the real enemy that uh, is causing us to have these uh, poisonous attitudes and to act in this compulsive, destructive type of way. And when we've gotten rid of that, through our understanding of voidness or emptiness, then we can give to others the antidote that is going to neutralize this poison and uh, bring us happiness, which is the understanding of voidness. So this is what we, and dependent arising, that despite things not existing in the way that they appear to exist, nevertheless it functions, so cause and effect still works. So we want to give this understanding of these two truths, these two facts, to others so that they have the antidote to be able to do this, um, not be harmed by poison, the poisonous attitudes, and be able to practice this donglen as well as bodhisattvas. So that's the general structure of the text. So in our remaining time, although we had uh, uh, initially, at least the way it was informed to me, uh, structured ourselves so that we had a question-answer session after lunch, I think that uh, it might be better that uh, uh, we have at the end of each session uh, questions and uh, in that way, you know, the material is a little bit fresh. But, uh, if there are things that you didn't understand or things that are connected with what we said, you can ask. And uh, we'll not just have a session after lunch devoted entirely to question and answers, but I'll explain the first part of the text uh, after lunch. So, why don't we first quiet down and to uh, try to digest a bit what is the uh, structure here what is this text all about and it's all about being able to transform the poisonous emotions which is something that's very very difficult to do and what prevents us from doing that you know I don't want to take on this you know terrible stuff from others because me 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 you know I don't want to do that I don't want to get my hands dirty this type of uh, attitude, and uh, you know, I have enough of my own problems. So, <laughs> what do you want to uh, first work on is uh, uh, the problems that we experience because of our compulsive karmic behavior, and 
stop acting in these destructive ways and act in constructive ways instead. So we start to build up change as we were speaking about uh, yesterday, uh, forge new, more positive neural pathways in terms of our behavior, in terms of how we look at things, and then go deeper, get rid of the self-grasping that is causing all of this. And then, once we have uh, a firm understanding of voidness and we have picked up, built up, you know, more and more positive force, then we are able to actually practice Donglen properly and we can give happiness to others because we've built up the causes <coughs> to be able to have something to give to uh, others. So this is the type of uh, structure that we find in this text. So what we want to do in thinking about it is, does this make sense? Is this how we would want to go about being able to help others? Be able to help others, I have to stop acting destructively, don't I? Because when I act destructively, I get into all sorts of horrible situations and I can't help anybody if, you know, all my friendships part, you know, nobody wants to stay with me. How can you help them if they don't want to be around you? Type of thing. So I have to change my behavior. And once I've changed my behavior and acted in a more positive type of way, I have to get rid of that self-grasping because even if I'm acting in a positive way, it can be very neurotic. You know, I am the savior, the martyr, I'm going to help everybody, I have to be so perfect and all of that. which can lead to a lot of arrogance, really, and put off a lot of people. I'm so holy, holy, this type of uh, attitude. So we have to get rid of the self-grasping. And only when we get rid of that self-grasping, you know, I don't want to get my hands dirty type of attitude, can we actually involve ourselves in the difficulties of others without worrying about me, me, me. Mother Teresa said it very nicely when, we had, uh, when uh, there were people who volunteered to work with her in Calcutta with the lepers. She said, if you're afraid that you're going to get leprosy, you can't work here. You know, if you're just thinking about you know, me and I don't want to catch the leprosy, then of course you won't want to touch anybody and so on. So you have to be free of that attitude in order to actually help. And once we're free of that attitude, then how do we help others? We help them by uh, helping them to gain this understanding as well. So we want to give them that understanding that we've developed. So this, does that make sense? Is what we need to uh, first understand, and then I said, uh, as I said, you know, be convinced that that's correct and that I want to do that, and that I'm able to do that, then you can properly build it up as a beneficial habit. It's called meditation, by familiarizing ourselves over and over and rehearsing with our imagination. You, know, you imagine taking on the sufferings and giving to others. 
but then actually get up off your seat and do something to help others. That is what it's all about. So, think about that.
Okay. So perhaps at the end of this contemplation, we come to the conclusion and the decision that I am going to try my best not to act under the influence of greed, anger, and naivety. Which means, of course, being able to recognize and identify when we are acting under the influence of these poisonous emotions, these toxic states of mind. For this, I think it's very helpful to remember the definition of a disturbing emotion or disturbing state of mind. It's hard to say they're all emotions. We don't really have an equivalent word for emotions in uh, our Asian languages. But uh, the definition is a state of mind that when it arises makes us uh, um, lose peace of mind and lose self-control. It's a very good definition. When we are disturbed, that's why I call it disturbing emotion. You know, it disturbs us when I am so attached to somebody and so greedy, or so attached to something, I'm just longing for it and thinking about it. Our mind's disturbed. We don't have peace of mind. And we lose self-control. We say things, we do things that uh, afterwards we might regret. And this is especially true with uh, anger. And naivety, thinking that uh, what I do doesn't matter. I can say anything I want to to you. I can come late. I can, you know, doesn't matter not going to have any effect on you. We don't take the reality of somebody else and their feelings seriously. They don't like to be ignored. They don't like to be kept waiting. You know, the same thing. It's our naivety that causes us to not even take that seriously. So that's a disturbing state of mind. We lose self-control. We just act without thinking. So what we want to do is to try to recognize. You can recognize, you know, if you become a little bit sensitive to your energy, when you feel a little bit nervous, a little bit uh, uneasy, you say something, but you feel a little bit uneasy saying it. You can notice that. That's a good indication that uh, there's some disturbing emotion behind it. And if you can slow things down enough in terms of uh, not necessarily acting in slow motion, but uh, in your mind processing it um, in a way that uh, allows you to first recognize before you actually say something stupid or something cruel that you're feeling a little bit uptight inside. Don't say it. You know, you use this Yamantika image, you know, stop it <laughs> very strongly. Don't do it. Yeah. 
That's not so easy, especially when we have an addiction, like for instance, to constantly check our smartphone for another message or something like that for some distraction. Then you can feel, I think, you know, first, I want to look at it. And then compulsively, without even thinking, we do it. And when you have that feeling of, I want to look at my phone, I want to check if something has come in, I don't want to miss any, anything, you're uneasy. You don't have peace of mind and you do lose self-control. And what's behind it is the self-grasping. I, me, solid me, I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss an important message. I don't want to miss what's going on in the world. I have to be a news junkie and look at the news over and over again. All comes from this grasping for this false me. I'm so important, I have to know. I don't want to miss anything. Very, very interesting to start to analyze what's behind that attitude of I don't want to miss anything. I want to see how many people like the picture that I posted that somehow it's going to make me feel secure. And of course it never does, does it? So we want more, because then we, I mean, it's really stupid if you think about it. We think that, you know, it doesn't work, but if I get, you know, more people looking at it, maybe it'll work. Maybe I'll feel better. <laughs> and then somebody tells you that in Russia, you know, for very little money you can buy likes. <laughs> get uh, a whole bunch of likes on your, uh, you know, for whatever you put up on your social media, then the whole thing starts to become quite ridiculous. But uh, I think it's a good example for understanding how self-grasping is behind this compulsive addiction to wanting to have likes and wanting to find out, you know, to get the latest messages and how compelling that is. You know, you get some sort of sound on your, on your, your machine. I mean, I have this all the time. You know, I get a, a sound that my uh, computer makes when an email comes in. It's very, very hard not to look at it. Isn't it? So, these are good. You know, it's very important to try to find everyday examples to see how we lose, completely lose self-control, and it certainly prevents us from helping somebody. If you think about it, somebody comes to you for help, they're starting to tell you their problem, and you've got mail, you know, you have a message, and you go, oh, sorry, and you take out your phone, and, you know, you look at it. That really prevents you from helping the other person, doesn't it? So, bring it down to everyday examples. So, what questions do you have? Yeah. Is there a microphone? Um, so, I uh, related to a lot uh, 
Well, I guess this being Samsara, you're only going to hear, hear about the one thing I sort of didn't. <laughs> um, you said that much of the problem with uh, not helping others or when it's this, oh, I don't want to get involved. Mm -hmm. and or I'm too busy. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, for me, I think for many, this is, it doesn't really relate much. You know, I sort of always been inclined to try to help the world, you know, and not taking care of myself as I should, you know, but as I want to start out there. And, uh, but, like, what I feel is the biggest obstacles, like the most wasted energy, is this uh, getting caught in this, oh, you who deserve and do not deserve, oh, you're behaving like this, do not deserve. And I feel like it's, yeah. You I don't deserve my help. Yeah, this, in the moment, you people are not behaving correctly, and so, and, and but, like, even if you end up, everyone deserves, I feel like, it's like missing the point. I, I heard that this to sin originally meant actually it's from archery. It is to miss the point, literally. And I feel like this whole, I, I can't be the only one that have been missing the point and spent my mental energy on uh, figuring out who, who deserves. Like uh, I spent so much time ha having the correct opinions about everything, like it's really, really, really important to have the correct political look. You, yeah, I, maybe some somebody can relate. Well, but I feel like this is a much bigger issue for me than, oh, I don't want to get my hands, or I don't have time. But we get into this debate trying to, yeah, on the internet. Well, you see, the uh, self-grasping can lead to many, many different uh, paths, many different manifestations. <laughs> so one can be, I'm too busy, what, I, I, what I'm doing is more important than you, I don't want to get my hands dirty, you know, it's too messy, this type of thing. Uh, there's also, it's too much for me, I can't handle it, and for that we have to be realistic because there's some things that we can't handle and some things that we can. So that requires, again, discrimination. But here you're talking about judgment. And judgment, again, is a misunderstanding of karma, basically. You know, there is no judge in uh, Buddhism. You know, it's sort of me, I'm separate from the whole thing, and I will judge whether you deserve my help or you don't deserve my help. Very dualistic way of uh, looking at things. So that's another form of self-grasping, that there's this me who's separate from the whole thing and I will judge what is good and what is bad. You know, we don't put this value judgment on things of good and bad, although sometimes those words will appear, but it doesn't have that heavy, you know, judgmental aspect uh, to it. But we need to be realistic and evaluate um, and take everybody seriously. You know, when somebody is complaining and suffering from something that we think is totally trivial, nevertheless, for them, that's suffering. 
and to judge it and say, you know, you know, you have uh, people who are, this example came up uh, the other day, you know, I don't have my private toilet in my, you know, in my room. I have to share it with other people. This is, you know, such a horrible problem. Well, to somebody who doesn't have a toilet at all and has to go, you know, use in the field, this is a ridiculous problem that uh, they have. Nevertheless, for that person, you know, who's experiencing, you know, I want a room with my own private toilet, that's a real suffering if they have to share toilet with, uh, with others. So, this leads to the whole issue of priorities. And who do we help first? And how do you help? This is a difficult question. And uh, for that, various guidelines that uh, I've heard and I've received is that you look, what are you best qualified to do, most qualified to do, and that there are not so many people doing. And, you know, are there people that actually have a connection to you that would be receptive to your help? And then, you know, little bit of a selfish aspect of it. What do you enjoy doing? But these are criteria that uh, you use. Otherwise, you know, there's just so much that can be done in the world. How do you choose? There's so many people that need to, you know, need help. How do you choose them? What kind of help? So what am I best qualified to do? Not so many other people doing it, so they really need it, and would these people be receptive to my help? And obviously, do I have the qualifications? So that's this first one. And if you're not enjoying doing it, if it's, you know, a big burden, you don't put your heart into it, people can sense that. But without being judgmental, you just, there's a difference between using your discrimination to discriminate, you know, what is helpful, what is harmful, what can I do, what can't I do, you know. That's this discriminating awareness. You know, sometimes it's just translated as wisdom, but that doesn't really give us a, uh, a clear idea of what it's talking about. We want to use that in a non-judgmental type of way, just deal with reality. Maybe one more question. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, you are using the terms conventional bodhicitta and deep bodhicitta. Right. Is that the same as what in other texts is said, relative and absolute? I yes. find your uh, translation actually much better because I understand that in the conventional bodhicitta is training the mind using your conceptual mind still right. uh, by using compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is uh, so that is actually more clear than relative <coughs> and absolute. But does it then mean that this text is mainly dealing with 
um, conventional bodhicitta um, rather than what I still call absolute bodhicitta. I'm a bit confused there because at the same time the text refers to Manjushri where wisdom comes in which is more related to absolute. Right. So please can you clarify? Okay, first of all I prefer conventional uh, bodhicitta or conventional truth to relative truth uh, and uh, deepest <coughs> truth to uh, uh, absolute truth. Absolute or ultimate truth, I think, gives the wrong idea that it is you know, some sort of transcendent thing over here, totally you know, fixed and unrelated to anything else. Whereas it's the deepest truth of everything. You know, so it's how things exist. How we establish things. Not so much how we establish, but the absence of these impossible ways that we think you know, establishes the existence of anything. Convention has to do with, you know, the world of appearances, and we're dealing with the world of appearances when we deal with conventional bodhicitta, because we want to attain that enlightenment and appear in various forms to help others, in order to benefit others. And all these appearances are, what should we say? How do you establish that uh, they exist and function? Well, conventionally they exist in the sense that they, uh, we have terms for them, we have concepts, we have ideas of them, and they refer to something. So we have the, uh, so that's convention, people agree. So there is the convention of me, the self. And me refers to something, refers to me. But it doesn't, there's nothing on the side of inside my body, inside my brain, inside any emotions or anything like that, that corresponds to a solid me. So that's the deepest truth about it. No such thing. Nevertheless, how do we establish that there is such a thing? How do you know that there is such a thing? Well, there's that concept of me. Me isn't just a concept, but there is that concept of me and it refers to something on the basis of all these parts that are changing at a different rate every moment. So there's nothing fixed that's staying there all the time. You can't locate the defining characteristic of me anywhere. But there's that convention. So that conventional truth. Conventional bodhicitta, we're dealing with the world of appearances. You know, there's the convention of you, there's the convention of me, there's the convention of what is help, you know, to do something. You know, if I go over to help you get up, well, I mean, there's the, the first step and the second step and extending my, which one is help? You know? 
So you can't say that any individual part of that, you know, that's the only thing, you know, there, that's help, is to lift my foot and put it down to go in the direction of you. But nevertheless, that's why I use the image of a whole as opposed to parts. There is such a thing as whole. And we call that helping you get up. And it refers to something. I actually do something. But you can't find that helping in any of the tiny microsecond movements of going there, can you? So it's convention. That's conventional truth. Conventional bodhicitta is dealing with that. You want to appear in various ways that will help others. So I use those terms. So let's end then with the dedication. We think whatever understanding has come from this, whatever positive force may that act as a cause for everybody to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all. Gündüğümüzce bir bölgeler